who in here is the type of person that when they, as an example, walk into a plane, couldn't care less how it works, but just says, I just hope I get there. Who's like, well, okay. And who's the other kind of person who's like, how does this plane work? Where's the wind, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a few people. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of like, you know, two, two kinds of people in the room. People that is like, when they look at something, they're like, I want to know exactly how it works. Give me the system. Show me what, what this is like and all this kind of stuff. And of course, there's the other ones who are like, I'm just so glad that this works. And I don't need to care about it, right? Um, we, we've been in this series on the cross uh, a couple of weeks and um, we've, we started it two weeks ago with this fascination of the cross, like just looking at, at the, the story and, and um, you know, the, the ethos of the New Testament that, that just had this fascination with the cross, preaching Christ crucified, and of course Christ resurrected as well, but how God used the cross to restore human, humanity. And, and we realized starting then, and I'm sure not just then, but you know, as we explore that in Scripture, that it, really what happened at the cross is bigger than we think. And there's so much going on there. And then last week we looked at like, well, what does it mean? From what? What did God restore us from? What did, you know, what was necessary? And we looked at really the, the gravity of sin or the, the depth of sin and how, how we've been created in God's image to enjoy relationship with him and really also, also an inner peace in ourselves, but relationship with others in the world and how sin, we, we could tell just by our own experiences. And I saw a lot of nods last week as we shared that really we know that sin has damaged something in our humanity and in our relationships. And we realized, oh, maybe sin is big, also bigger than I thought it was. It wasn't just, just a simple transaction or just, you know, just my relationship with God, although that's big enough. And when that gets restored, other relationships get restored. So we've been looking at that. And then sometimes we ask the question, well, how does God accomplish that? How does God accomplish this? What actually happens or happened on the cross? And, and, and I think that as we explored it in the scripture, both categories of people uh, in, in a limited way get kind of like, um, um, what's the word, satisfied. And both categories of people feel frustrated because the, the scriptures doesn't fully, fully tell us all the intricate, intricate details, just like we read from Paul this morning where he steps back, even after he explains, after 11 chapters, one of his deepest theological books called Romans, and he's like, oh God, the depths of your wisdom, who can know your mind, right? And, and it's true. So both, we kind of see both in the scripture, it teases us a bit on both sides, and we both get frustrated in the scriptures. So we're going to do our best to kind of like ask the question, and, and this week and next week are a little bit like a mini-series within a series, just because I want it to get complicated, a mini-series within a series. Uh, today we'll talk about backstory and a key idea, and the next week we'll expand to see a, to the bigger picture in the scripture. But I want to start by answering this question or looking at it. How does God accomplish this? What actually happened on the cross with Romans 3? And, um, and it's just our basis and our foundation, and you're going to see, you've got to stick with us to next week because we want to see something even broader as we do that. But, but read with me, okay? Verse 19, uh, we're going to read a few verses here and just read straight through it, and then we'll jump into to trying to discern what, um, you know, what's this telling us and how, how we can understand it. So let's start off this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
The righteousness is give, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or or is God uh, the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, you will who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Let's just pray. God, um, even just reading now, we stand back and say, oh, the depths of your wisdom. And um, I pray, Lord, that you just lead us and guide us, uh, speak to us. And I, I know that there's different people here, different walks in their spiritual journey. And um, some of us might be affirmed in, in, uh, in our relationship with you, um, filling in the dots and some, uh, God, might be drawn into exploring who you are and, and really just uh, enamored by what you've done for us, God. So I pray that regardless of where we are, God, um, that you just lead us and guide us and speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's, here's the end of, us, of the first section in Paul's letter to Romans. I mean, Paul writes this letter to this first century church in Rome. Now, this church included both Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed crowd of people in a sense where they came from. Like, what was their religious or secular background? What was their experience of faith or non-faith or life coming even into knowing who Jesus is? So Paul's helping this first century church understand how God made a way for everyone, for everyone, Jew and non-Jew, for everyone to be restored from the damage of sin. And Paul writes this also to invite everyone, not just those with a religious background, but those with a non-religious background, into this restoration project that God has for humanity to restore our relationship with him and with ourselves and with others and with the world. And, God inv- and, and Paul invites us into this, you know, as he writes to this church, we, we read this, and this restoration project has different names. A name is righteousness, one of the names is justice, one of the names we talked about last week was shalom or well-being or human flourishing. The word that Paul uses here as like help to help the, the readers understand, well, what happened for us to be restored? He uses the word atonement, or at least in our English word, it's the word atonement. In fact, the word that Paul uses um, really in this passage is mercy seat, but we read it atonement. The atonement is an interesting word. It's like the best translation for the Hebrew word called kipper. And kipper basically means to wipe away or to cover or to cleanse. And you might have heard, like for the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Maybe you heard of that, right? And so the word Yom is day, and the word Kippur is atonement. And they celebrate the day of atonement. And this goes back into the Old Testament. If you go back to Leviticus and read through the intricate details of how the law was trying to shape this nation into becoming a unique people among the world around them. 
and also to help them be free, be free from the damage of sin in their life and in their heart. Leviticus 16.30 gives us a little bit of a summary. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you. This atonement, this restoration, this bringing back what was lost. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. There was this sense that, that their lives did not fully meet up with, with all God had in store for them. And they knew that they failed and they sinned and they hurt themselves and they hurt others, whether it was intentional or unintentional. And so right in the middle of this, this passage, in, in the middle of Leviticus, we read that uh, what the priest would do. The priest would get into the temple and come over the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, which was in the temple, and there was a lid over the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. And when an animal was sacrificed, the priest would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat, on that lid. And in that moment, they believed that God's merciful forgiveness was granted to them. That, that despite the hurt that they did to themselves or to others, intentionally or unintentionally, there was an opportunity for them to be free and for them to be forgiven. And I understand that going back to Leviticus, the intricate details of that, and sometimes knowing that we live in a new covenant with Jesus, it might feel foreign to us. But the heart is still the same. How can people be free and forgiven? And we said last week, who would not want us here or any of our friends or family members or coworkers, who would not want to walk life in freedom and forgiveness? That's the heart of that there. And this practice did two things for Israel. It helped Israel see the bigger picture of their sin. It helped them see that all sin, even unintentional sin, damages them and others. But, and, and because of that, let me say this, it must be brought to justice or rectified, but then it points to God's merciful forgiveness, merciful love, merciful grace. And here is what's happening here, and if we just take this little picture that we described, is God, God's way of restoring Israel, trying to justify them, make them right. He wants to make the world right or bring the world to rights and bring justice. Well, you can't bring the world to rights if the people aren't brought to rights, right? Like if I say, we're going to build a just community, but we're all going to act unjustly, how would, would, we, would we succeed? We wouldn't succeed. It'd be like, well, well, you know what? Let's grow in justice. And as we grow in justice, we'll see a just community, right? Let's grow in love. And as we grow in love, we'll see a loving community. God wanted to restore Israel, in a sense, justify them, whether it was a temporary repeatable moment like the Day of Atonement, but making them right as a way to reach the world. Because God's heart is that the world would know his justice that the world would live in his justice, that the world would live in human flourishing called shalom, that, that people would live in connectedness with God, and God was cultivating Israel. So Israel would be this light, this megaphone, this, this speaker into the nations that God wants to restore all people and wants all people to live free and forgiven. But Paul, in this, in this chapter, gives, tells us about a problem. Because he's writing to Jewish Christians as well. And Jewish Christians were kind of like, hey, I'm Jewish. I've known God for a long time. My mom's last name tells me something that she's connected to something divine in her legacy. So maybe I'm better than the rest of them. Maybe I'm better than the non-Jews. And so there's this discussion going on in the church. And Paul, as he's describing God's incredible work of restoration, is also trying to deal with, with the, those Jewish people who are trying to understand where they fit in. 
But to see the problem as the story of Israel happened is that the people, the nation that God loved so much and that God included into this whole project to bring light into the nations, they were also affected by sin. And their law and their ethnicity and their connections and their practices did not spare them from the damage of sin. They were damaged themselves. And they failed at their vocation, at their purpose. And so chapter 3 in there, you know, Paul is asking these rhetorical questions. You know, is being Jewish enough? Is being uh, following the law enough? Is being, hey, we, God gave us this message. Isn't that enough? God gave us the message. We were the message holders. Isn't that enough? And these Jewish Christians are asking, like, aren't we better off than the others? They literally ask, are we not better off than the others? Or Paul rhetorically asks. And the short answer is no. Paul says no in, ch- in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he says this, and you can read it off the screen. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even, not even one. And it's interesting. I had a conversation with a friend about this text because I was talking about how humanity longs for the Lord, longs for, for, for God, even though they don't know it. And my friend wrote back to me, and, and um, he's careful uh, when this is all public, so he sends me these private notes. He's like, Dave, nobody wants God. You know, my atheist friends, they don't want God. And then he quotes this verse, right? That no one is righteous and no one understands and no one seeks God. And I'm like, I, I think this was meant for Paul to help Israel understand they're also damaged. But that as we look out to the world, there's a hunger in the human heart, whether it's realized or not, whether people come to faith or not, whether people jump onto what God longs for them is a different story. But here Paul's answering this Jewish question. And basically, those who held this hope and this message, they failed. They had this vocation to be like to the world, they failed. I'm not talking bad about the Jewish people as a whole, but I'm just talking about about the story uh, that we see. They were messengers. They had the message. And it was was done. N.T. Wright describes it like this in this short sentence. He says, the bearers of the solution to the problem turned out to be themselves the part of the problem. The bearers of the solution to the problem turned out to be themselves the part of the problem. It's kind of like you're on a hockey team. Your team is like really not working well together. You hire this captain. Hey, captain, can you help us work together? You be a team player. This captain comes in and he, he or she is just a silo. They just, they couldn't care less about the team. And then they're like, you're, I mean, you were supposed to be the solution, but you're now you're part of the problem because nothing's working. And that's kind of what N.T. Wright's saying. That's kind of what Paul is saying. And, and when, you're, when God's left with that, I know God is sovereign and he knows all things, but when, when you see the trajectory of this, how would God not, like, how would God want to restore Israel, but also the world at the same time? That's his goal. He wants to use Israel. He wants to restore the world. Israel was part of that, but they fail at their vocation. Verse 21 is such a great verse. Verse 21 says, but now, just those two words, but now. In other words, Paul's like, all this was taking place. But God jumps in. God shows us that his plan is going to continue. And he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. But now, the righteousness of God has been made known. God had done something to keep his restoration project going. But now, 
God's righteousness is revealed or made known or disclosed to the world. The righteousness of God. Now again, that word in, in the original could mean righteousness, could mean justice, uh, could have a sense of rectifying things or making things right. One of the best ways to describe that original word is making things right. God making the world right. So God's righteousness or right making of things is his restoration project for humanity. And Paul says, but now God's project of restoration, it's, it's happening. He's making it known. And here's how he's making it known in verse 22. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus shows up, God's project of restoration, even though it seemed like it was going to take a detour, even though it seemed like it was going to fail, even though it seemed there would be no light to the nations, Jesus comes in. Jesus demonstrates God's restoration project in motion. The coming of the Messiah was bringing this about. Jesus was faithful to God's plan. But if we look, humanly speaking, okay, I would say it looks like God was in a jam. Humanly speaking, right? You're like, this is how this is going to pan out, and this train broke down. Oh, man, what's going to happen? Like, I think that kind of makes it look like God's in a jam. We know God's never in a jam. I get it. I'm not saying a bad theological statement here. But potentially, as a human, I'm like, looks like Maybe God's in a jam. He's in, see, he's in a covenant with Israel. He's faithful to this covenant. And, 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 but the thing is, he's faithful to this covenant to these people, but he can't use them to fulfill the plan because they've gone off. But he had to stay true to his covenant promise. It's like you promise a whole bunch of people, we're going to go this way, and this is how we're going to go. But you're like, but now this, this is not working. But I, we still got to get there, right? And so here's... God, he can use his covenant people, but wants to keep his covenant process or promise. And he's committed to restoring the world, but the nation that he was going to use failed. That's like really complicated. It feels complicated. What is going to happen for God to make this work? And, um, you know, I was, um, I was thinking, and it seems like that seems like a, a moment you're stuck. And a couple of little while ago, I was on a plane and I watched this movie. I think it was like Mission Impossible. In every Mission Impossible movie, there's always a tense moment, right? And so this moment was like they got to defuse a bomb that's going to destroy like 10-mile radius. And of course, they only have three minutes to do it. And of course, when they open it up, it looks like a mess of wires and nobody knows what to do. And of course, when you, when you see these bomb situations on TV, all you realize is, one, there's a wire to the detonator. Two, there's a wire to some cell phone three miles away. Four, there's green and red and blue. And if I cut this one first, then it's going to cut the power supply. And like, you just sit there, you're like, well, you're fried. It's over. This like, nothing's going to happen here. This looks like a mess. If I was there, we'd be dead. Because, I mean... I struggle with like, what to do, what are the first three things I should do in the morning? And here's like, here's like, 1,700 wires connected to four sources, and if I just cut one wrong one, we're fried. And I, I wonder, like, how can someone find the exact way to save this situation without blowing everyone up, right? And I think of God kind of like looking at the mess of the world and God's heart and desire and promise is to restore humanity. But this thing happened the people he was using to be messengers failed at it. Failed at it, you know? And you would think, well, maybe, maybe God can just separate all the good and bad people in the world, but we read last week that evil runs through all of us, so no, that won't work. Maybe God could force us all to follow him, but then that wouldn't really live out 
the vision we have in creation that we're his image bearers. We think and create and we have free will and, and, and the response to the Lord is our loving response to him. Well, forcing us won't really work. That's not restoration. That's manufacturing. And here's his plan in verse 21. I'll just highlight a couple of different words. He says, but now, apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So apart from the law, God doesn't use this failed system that only revealed people of their sin but never could really change them or restore them. He says, now, apart from the law, God's righteousness is revealed. He, it's like it, the law was kind of like you take an online survey, right? Like, uh, like, am I a good parent or a bad parent? And you, you, like, you answer like, like 20 questions, and then you get this email, and it tells you exactly where you fall short. And then you're like, thanks, now what do I do with that, Right? That's kind of like the law. It tells us where we go wrong. It tells us where we're damaged. It tells us where we're even hurting ourselves and others. But there's no next step. How, what, do I, what do I do from there? Right? And God doesn't use the law to rescue Jew or non-Jew from the effects of sin. He goes around it. And then that, this is where Paul says next. He says that, so I'll read the whole sentence again so we get the flow. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. Oh, wow. Like It's like God's like, okay, I'm going to go around the law to display my righteous work. But the law and the prophets testify to something that was coming, which is the Messiah, Jesus. It's like, oh, okay. I, this, I'm going to stay faithful to this covenant promise, but I have to go around the law to get there, even though the law and the prophets within all of God's promises are pointing to what's you know, this, this, this beautiful thing that's going to happen in the Messiah, Jesus, to fulfill Israel's vocation. So God's, and I'm going to insert a word here, covenant righteousness is fulfilled by a true Israelite, Jesus. Jesus is the true Israelite. Where Israel failed, Jesus doesn't. Where Israel drops the message, Jesus is the message. Where Israel doesn't fulfill the vocation, Jesus does. Where Israel, um, you know, is not able to be the light to the world, Jesus is. It's kind of still Israel, but it's a true Israelite, Jesus. And I wrote it like this on the screen, maybe to help us figure it out. God works around the covenant people while fulfilling the covenant promise. It's not that he doesn't love the Jews anymore. Of course he does. In fact, Paul says everyone, everyone can be restored by God. So it's, it's not a matter of love or like or not. But here's, God works around the covenant people while fulfilling a covenant promise. He works around the covenant people to fulfill this covenant promise because his heart is to still restore humanity. And how is that possible? Because Jesus stayed true to God's vision. Look at verse 22. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now you might say, well, Dave, that means that, that this happens because I put faith in Jesus. And there's other verses in the scripture that attest to that. In fact, Paul says it later on, you're justified by faith. So I don't want to like bust that bubble. That's true. By faith, we come, God, God restores us as we put our faith in him. But if, you might have a note, a footnote in your Bibles. And if you look at the bottom and maybe you don't have your Bibles on you, that's Okay. But that little phrase, faith in Jesus, can actually be translated the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. 
So, in, so maybe, you know, where here it says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus, it could be said the righteousness or this, this restoration project, what God has disclosed, is given through the faithfulness of Jesus. N.T. Wright uh, translates it this way. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, for the benefit of all who have faith. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, for the benefit of all who have faith. Now, this is awesome because for those of us who say, wait, but we're justified by faith. Yeah, Paul says that later. But this is even better because Paul is saying, I, it's not even fully dependent on my faith. It's G, G, his faithfulness to God's promises and God's purpose. Jesus was faithful to this restoration project. It's through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, for the benefit of all who have faith. So Jesus was faithful to God's plan, even though Israel wasn't. And Jesus, this is a beautiful thing, Jesus extends the day of atonement for all of us. Jesus takes what happened in a moment on an annual basis, repeatable, that needed to be repeatable because people kept on sinning and damage kept happening and human flourishing wasn't happening. And so this repeatable day of atonement was going on. But what Jesus does, because of his faithfulness, he takes that, he extends the day of atonement for all of us, for all time. God's merciful forgiveness to the world is offered and Jesus becomes the sacrifice on the mercy seat atonement on the mercy seat where sin is dealt with, where sin is covered, where sin is cleansed. And that damaging actions, like we talked last week, and the damaging agent, the power of sin, is dealt with because Jesus was faithful to God's mission. So when we say God, apart from the law, his righteousness showed up, Jesus showed up. The Messiah showed up. The Christ showed up and was faithful to God's plan, and was faithful to God, and grew in that way. Now here, let me just pause for a second, because I want all of us just to stop and just say thank you for a second. Jesus was faithful to you. Jesus was faithful to me. Jesus was faithful to us. Jesus was faithful to the world. Jesus was faithful because he was faithful to God, because he was fulfilling God's purposes. And Jesus stayed the course for your forgiveness and my forgiveness, for your freedom and my freedom, Jesus was faithful. He went all the way fulfilling God's plan so the damage of sin and the damage of sins would not be our permanent state. Isn't that incredible? Jesus was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, we can be restored. And that happens as we put our faith in Christ in what he did. What happens during the atonement? There's so many theories that theologians talk about and write, and next week, I think, in, hopefully in, a, in an engaging and fun but also meaningful, relevant way, we're going to walk through some of them because I think it's important we know that there's, there's a variety of images the scriptures give us. But, you know, all these theologies are names for atonement. These are, these are theories that people developed out of scripture but there's still these beautiful images in Scripture. And over time, people would, would, would start trying to make sense of them. But what do we know for sure? We know for sure sin was dealt with. We know for sure that the action of our sin, there's, there's ability to be forgiven. We know that the agent of sin is defeated on the cross through Christ. We know that God's wrath, his judgment against a sinful rebellion, is taken care of through Christ, in Christ, on the cross. 
And it's difficult because some say God's wrath went onto Jesus. And, and I don't want to get into that because when I look at the scriptures, it's hard to, to fully, fully, you know, really paint that picture out. I think we've got to be careful not to say more than scripture says. But we do know that God's wrath, his jealous love for us that, that hates to see sin damage us is resolved. God's wrath against sin, God's jealous anger against how sin ravages human humanity was taken care of at the cross. Because Jesus deals with sin and death. Because Jesus plunged into sin and death. Because Jesus was faithful to God's restoration project. And in the cross, God judges sin and forgives us of it. Now here's where I want us to recognize. Next week we'll, do, we'll say this, but here's a little seed of this. Sometimes people will say, well, God, Jesus is on the cross, God is here, and Jesus is, God is plummeting Jesus. And two, two theologians say it this way, God is the subject on the cross, not, not the object. God is the one initiating. God is the one doing the work. God is the one that's active on the cross. And sin is the one that's being obliterated. And we have to keep that in mind because often our culture or paradigms or some theories that come over through the centuries will often give us these pictures or paintings of what happens on the cross that looks more like us than God, that looks more like us than what the scriptures say. And so we'll, we'll look at that next week. Uh, some people ask the question, was God being violent through the cross? Well, God allowed Jesus to die through crucifixion, but Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus voluntarily gave his life. Even though we can read parts of scripture that say, God, God used this, God worked in this. Jesus is the sacrifice on the mercy seat while on the cross. But I want, I want you to consider this. Jesus gave up himself under sin's rule. And it's so fascinating if you read through the, through the, through the sermons in Acts. You know, you read through the book of Acts. All this, these Christians are growing. Communities are growing. And we, we read like seven or eight gospel messages. And here's a glimpse of some of these messages. I could have listed six or seven of them. But here's a glimpse of, you know, when you think of if, when the gospel was preached in Acts, who gets to blame for, Jesus, for, for killing Jesus on the cross. And listen, listen to some of these, these messages. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Yes. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Here's another one. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Here's another one. Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It's evident who killed Jesus. In a sense, we did. Our sin put him to the cross. Humanity put him to the cross. List the figures in there. Pilate, the crowd, us, the Jews, the worldview, the system kills Jesus. And here's a question that's going to come up that I think is so vital. And it's this question that I want us to work through. Did the atonement change God's mind about you? Because some people think God hated me until Jesus went on the cross. Because I'm so I'm sinful, damaged by sin, and because God hates sin, God hates all things sinful, and I'm sinful. Did the atonement change God's mind? And yet Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, God sent Jesus, right? While we were still sinners, God sent Jesus for us. The famous verse, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. N.T. Wright says, wouldn't it be funny if, if we read this verse the way we think it often should be read? God hated the world so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. 
That, that doesn't sound right. Does that, does that sound like? That doesn't sound right. God loved the world. God loved the world. The cross didn't change God's mind about us. The cross reflects God's heart for us. The cross reflects God's heart for us. God's pursuant, covenant faithfulness to restoring the world and the damages of sin is because he loves humanity, his creation. And he's grieved and angered and, and jealously angered at the damages of sin and how it hurts us and hurts other people. So he loves us and pursues us, and in Christ he dies for us. And in that death, not only forgives our sinful action, but he defeats the agent of sin. Does that for us? Does that for all humanity? The cross didn't change God's mind for us. The cross dealt with our sin, which is damaging. And in God's loving holiness or holy love, he, he, he wipes that out. His merciful forgiveness, like the Day of Atonement, applied to us. And here's how we understand it a little bit. Paul, two other words, and we'll wrap up with these two words. Because sometimes we use theories, but I like words. They're in the Bible, right? Let's use the words in the Bible. Verse 24, we're justified, right? And all are justified freely by his grace. And later on in verse 28, he says, we're justified by our faith. In other words, we're made right. We're declared right before God. You know, sin... Sin disconnects us from God. Sin damages us. Sin damages the people around us. So it, according to justice, while somebody, something has to be rectified, we become justified, made right, declared right before God. Where sin, is, where sin accuses us, declares us wrong before God, the cross declares us right before God. The cross justifies us. God sees us without sin. Justification, I like how some people say it, is like, just like we never sinned. Just like we never sinned. And I, I, I believe it. I love it. Like one day as we walk into the fullness of God's presence and Dave Manifold walks in with the fullness of God's presence. Oh man, I mean, if I walk in unjustified, I am fried. Right? But one day I walk in and it's like, why don't you see, Lord, all the impurities of all my life and actions? And God said, well, I'm, I'm looking at you through the cross. I'm looking at you through what Jesus did for your sin, your action and the agent that was influencing you. And because you've put your faith in, in, in the faithfulness of Jesus that fulfilled this restoration project, you're justified. I'm like, really? <laughs> All the depths of God's wisdom. All the depths of God's wisdom. We're forgiven. And the other word Paul uses is redeemed. And that's a, that's a, that's a word that is like, means like, like almost like a, slavery, a slave becoming free, right? You're freed, like a slave might be freed. It's like, it's like Israel in, in, in Egypt and the Exodus. That's another theme of, of the atonement. Because sin enslaves us, the cross frees us. Sin enslaves us, the cross frees us. The power of sin, not just the actions, has no more power over us. Are we influenced by it? Yes. Do we still struggle with our sinful nature? Yes. But because Jesus judged and defeated sin on the cross, we are freed, we're redeemed, we're we're set free from the slavery. And the the word redemption is even better. And this is it. Every Christian story is a story of redemption. All of our stories here, all of your stories here, it's a story of redemption. It's not just a Jesus saved me, I'm going to heaven story. It's a story of redemption. 
All of our stories are stories of redemption. Once we were in darkness, now we are in light. Once we were dead, now we're alive. Once we were lost, now we're found. We're freed. It's the beauty that goes on that happens in atonement. And I'm going to close with this word. I'm going to ask the team to come up and we'll close and just wrap up with this, this verse. And, and um, I just want us to read this verse, listen to it, let it kind of speak over us and, and hopefully see how this brings it together. Because it's, it's the biblical language and words we want to get at, not just the theories that we develop. But here's, here's, here it is, First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.19. I love this verse. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all at work in the cross. Can't separate them. If we believe in the work of the Trinity, we don't believe in a disembodied, separated Godhead. They're all at work in everything, all the time. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God himself felt the pain of the cross in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So God was in Christ at that moment. God was reconciling the world to himself, and God no longer holds our sins against us. That's part of the foundation of atonement. So we're justified, we're made new, we're truly forgiven. Our guilt is gone, and so is any punishment associated with that guilt. It's the beauty of it. Now next week, as we, next week we're going to kind of paint this bigger picture of atonement because we often know the story I painted today. And it's a foundational story of, of, of how sin damages, but how God frees us. And next week, as we see this picture, I hope it's going to just like open our eyes to just the amazing biblical language around atonement. But just, just for today, as we, as, we, as we wrap this up, Who's this for? This is for everyone. This is for all of us. This is for every person that we lock eyes with. And Paul says it so beautifully. Paul says it so amazingly. He says, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus, and I'll use those words, for all who believe. Isn't that amazing? For all who believe. God did all this to restore humanity. God did all this to restore us to him and us to each other. Forgiveness and freedom happens because of our union with Christ. And our union with Christ happens when we put our faith in him. And so God will never force you to to experience forgiveness. God will never force you to even welcome his freedom. He offers it to us. He already did it. He already established it. Jesus was faithful to the task. It happened. It's there for all of us, right? It's not just because we believe that it's there. Our belief is not that strong. It's the faithfulness of Jesus fulfilling God's plan that it's available to us. But then we enter it through our faith. We enter it in a response to God. God will never force you into it or force you into freedom or forgiveness. But his righteousness, his justification, his purposes for us, his redemption, it's only possible through our union with Christ. And our faith brings us there. So here's here's your response today. I know that for many of us coming to Jesus, following Jesus has been a process. You know, it's, some of us don't have that, 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 line, that line in our life, like I was here and I was here. I know Paul tells us in language like darkness to light and death to life, and it's awesome. But some of us have this journey where over time we're like, oh, I, oh, 
I'm following Jesus. And we're taking, we're taking like one step after. I, Jesus, he's asked me to follow him. I trust him. I'm exploring and I'm, I'm making these steps. And along the way, we start to discover Jesus. And just like the, the disciples, at one point we're like, I believe in you fully. I'm, I'm not just following you, like I'm, but I'm following you fully. And, and that's so awesome. I, I think that's so beautiful. But, but maybe some of us need to take, take a step of faith just to say, yeah, I have been exploring Jesus, but I want the fullness of him. I want to put my, I want to put my faith in his faithfulness to God's mission in him because he did this for me, for us. And maybe you're admitting just today for the first time, I need what Jesus did. I need what Jesus did. You might revel in worship if you've already experienced it. But as you're slowly following him, you might say today, I need what Jesus did. I want to step into that. And I hope, just like Paul tells us, God's kindness, his merciful forgiveness leads us to repentance. And if that's you today, then I'm going to invite you to, to do that. And uh, so let's just take a moment. Let's just be quiet, maybe with our eyes closed. Um, and, and some of us, our earlier on in our journey of following Christ, maybe we're just exploring. But maybe today the Lord revealed something to you so profound. Not through my words, but through the life of Jesus and the work of his spirit. That he did something for you, for humanity. That Jesus was faithful to God's mission so you could be restored. That something happened for you. It happened on the cross. God's merciful forgiveness is offered to you. And he's inviting you in to that and into that life and then to be part of, even be part of his mission to extend to the others. And right now in this moment, saying, yes, I do believe that. I do put my faith in the faithful act of Jesus on the cross. And if that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to respond to that. And even as just we're praying and our eyes are closed, if maybe you want to do that with your hand raised. You just want to just lift up your hand and say, yes, I do. I do believe that. I do believe that. Thank you, Jesus. Now just take a moment. for some of us just to maybe even respond in a similar way not because this is the first time for you but just to say yes I am so grateful I'm so grateful for the faithfulness of Jesus to God's mission for me I do I have and I continue to put my faith in him and believe in him that's just an affirmation of our hearts towards God if that's you yeah then just feel free to respond that way even with your hand up bless you Jesus Oh, Jesus tells a story in Luke 15, right, about the prodigal son. And Tim Keller writes a book a couple of years ago. He calls it Prodigal God. And I love how he flipped the terms. You know, the word prodigal means to be reckless, 
And the son was prodigal. He was reckless. He squandered the wealth. And I think as Keller wrote this book, he wanted to help us know that God's love is so extravagant, like that father's love that embraces the son back and then longs for the older son to be part of, what he, of his love for him all the time. God's love is extravagant for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We just stand back and say, oh, the depths of your wisdom, oh, the depths of your grace. We can't fathom it. Who are we? We don't have your mind. And God, and I admit in my limited way, my limited knowledge, my limited communication skills to describe even just a slice of that today, God. But I pray and trust that your Holy Spirit will, will lead us and guide us and affirm your truth, God, your truth in our hearts. We thank you. That in a moment in history, but now, in that moment, your righteousness, your, your justice, your, 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 your desire for human flourishing and your way in kingdom vision was displayed through Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you for the faithfulness of your son to your mission and restoration project for us and for the world. And God, as, as we continue this even next week, may we see the fuller implication, God, of what that means for us and our lives and our world. But God, just today, right now in this moment, we say thank you. Thank you. Thank you that your righteousness was on display and that Jesus was faithful to your righteousness and your purposes. We exclaim today, we believe. We believe. And we're grateful that in our belief, you include us and welcome us into the restoration for us and into the restoration project for the world. We say yes. In Jesus' name. Amen.